tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church, that's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Well, hello. Here we are then, once again, <laughs> jumping into the deep end of, <laughs> yeah, I've always meant at the same time, well, we're here once again and about to jump into the deep end of the great pool of Scripture and, and uh, flail about. Let, let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit. They shall be created and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael, the archangel, defend us in battle. Be our defense against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the earth, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, let's open the big book on the coffee table. Open it to 1 John 4. That's where we are. 1 John 4, 19 to... uh, uh, the fifth chapter, the fourth verse. So, beloved, we love God because he first loved us. Um, uh, there's that, that cute old uh, evangelical song, Oh, How I Love Jesus Because He First Loved Me. Well, yeah. If anyone says, I, now remember, uh, this is agape, and I have shared with you over the past few uh, days that it it. I interpret agape. Now, again, take it with a grain of salt, but I think this is a reasonable interpretation. And I refer you to C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves. Agape came to mean, in Christian use, sacrificial love. If anyone says, I love God but hates his brother, he is a liar. Whoever does not have a sacrificial love for a brother whom he has seen cannot have a sacrificial love for God whom he has not seen. This is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Well, that's, remember, it isn't just feeling good things about your brother. It's, it's, it's willing to make sacrifices for his well-being. Are you willing to make sacrifices um, to give stuff up for the, for the uh, well-being of someone who has the claim to be brother? I mean, that's, that's, that's difficult. Uh, I remember, uh, I, I've shared the story that back in the good old days of my early Pentecostal involvement, people would come up to me who I had never met and say, brother, I don't know your name, but the Lord told me to tell you. And I wanted to say, why are you calling me brother if you don't know my name? You know, that, that, that this idea of Christian brotherhood. It is a very important thing. Now, 
I'm not saying that someone whose name you don't know is not your brother. You're your brother because you share in the, the common fatherhood of God for all human beings. But the scriptures really are telling us that we do have to unfortunately get involved with each other. <laughs> Whether we like each other or not, we have to be involved with each other. So I think that's I think that's kind of the subtext of this. Let's move on. Everyone who believes, what do I tell you? Believe means all the time. Uh, uh, everyone who trusts that Jesus is the Christ, well, Messiah, that Jesus is the Messiah, is begotten by God. Whoa, this is interesting. We call Jesus the only begotten Son of the Father, but Saint John is saying that that we are generated from God. If we uh, um, can make the leap to trust that Jesus, in fact, is the Messiah. I mean, well, of course Jesus is the Messiah. Well, look at it from the perspective of the people to whom John was speaking. Now, he may have been speaking to Greeks, he may have been speaking to Jews, or I suspect a combination of both. Um, but the people at the time of Christ expected a Messiah from among the Jews. That was, it was to be uh, this, they were all looking for a Messiah. We see that even reflected in the, uh, in the um, Aeneid, that Virgil, writing the Aeneid, talks about uh, Augustus as if he were a Messiah. So they were looking for, for a savior in that, in that time and place. So they weren't expecting a construction worker. <laughs> they were they were expecting someone, well, you know, have you ever heard the saying, you're the answer to my prayers, just not the answer I was hoping for? You know, that, 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 that Jesus was not who they were expecting. Well, everyone who can trust that Jesus, in fact, is the Messiah, has this spark of God growing in them. And everyone who loves the Father loves also the one begotten by him. So, again, we're in this together. In, now, this is where it gets interesting. In this way, we know that we love the children of God for when we love God and obey his commandments. Wait, 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 wait. We, we, what does that have to do? Well, if you love someone, we can't love What he's saying here is you can't love God uh, without loving other people. He said that further up. And he's, think about it. This is, this is not a very mysterious thing, really. If you take care of and protect and genuinely selflessly love my children, that's the, the, the best thing you can do for me. I mean, that, that, uh, have you ever said to someone, yeah, I really enjoy you. I get, I love you dearly, but your kids, boy, it wouldn't, the friendship wouldn't last long. And, you know, when I decide I don't like one of the children of God, I'm not liking God either. This is, this is something that, that is very human and, and really very practical. So everyone who loves the Father loves also the one begotten by him. In this way, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Now, this is where it gets really strange. For the love of God is this, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Oh, my, but it's a great burden. I can never lie. I can never covet. I can never 
fool around. I can, I can never, you know, it's wrong to take the pencils from work. Um, that kind of thing. The commandments are very burdensome. Uh, <laughs> there are all sorts of jokes about that, which I won't tell on the radio. But this this idea of, of, of the commandments aren't burdensome. Is the little poison sign that you might stick on a bottle of bleach to warn your kids, you know, the yucky face, do they still do that, uh, to warn your kids that that's poisonous? Is that burdensome? No, but I really want to drink the bleach. Well, you're nuts. You know, the Ten Commandments, again, I've shared this with you many times, that I should be grateful to God every time I see a stop sign or a red light. I usually get irritated by them. But if it weren't for stop signs and red light, I would have been roadkill a long time ago. Uh, these are there out of out of concern for me. Uh, we don't think of law as, as being something that is concerned with my well-being, but it is. The love of God is this, that we keep his commandments. The Ten Commandments are God's love for us. God gave them to us because he loves us. Um, we're a lawless people by the fall of Adam and Eve and, and in our political life. We, we, you know, we're the first revolutionary republic in the United States and we don't like rules. Uh, we, we somehow feel that, that rules are, are an, an infringement of liberty. But if they're rules established by God... They're not an infringement on liberty. They're the path to liberty. That these things would tear us down. So his commandments are not burdensome. And whoever, this is kind of interesting. This is kind of, well, for whoever is, his commandments are not burdensome. For whoever is begotten by God conquers the world. How are you going to conquer the world? Well, by raising an army, by signing a protest. But No, by obeying the Lord. I, this is pretty clear that his commandments are are the way that we are loved by God and we how we love God we love one another that that the commandments are about my relationship to other people and you know we don't just obey the law as Christians we fulfill the law Jesus said I have not come to um destroy the law but to fulfill the law well I remember Rabbi Lefkowitz when I said that to him he said well what does that mean it's very simple. The commandment is thou shalt not commit adultery. The fulfillment of that commandment is to have a dear friendship with your spouse. And a lot of times, we, well, I've never cheated on my spouse. No, but are you close to your spouse? Well, no, we hardly talk. This is, this is the fulfillment of the law. Thou shalt not steal. That's the commandment. How do we fulfill that? By charity, by generosity. Uh, thou shalt not bear false witness. How do we fulfill that? By speaking well when other people want to, to, to um, humiliate or, or uh, um, gossip about other people, that we defend them, we speak well of them. I, I, I remember a, a pastor of mine, I don't want to mention his name, but uh, a great man. He, he was my pastor for, for many years and a dear friend still. Um, uh, he'd ruin, you know, we'd be standing around, the clergy would be standing around, bad-mouthing one of the brothers, and 
he'd ruin the conversation by saying, well, yeah, he's got his issues, but he really is a charitable person. I remember when I was in a bind, and he held, he ruined every good conversation by saying something nice about the people that we were trying to gossip about. That's who we should be. You should be, when Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, salt gives good taste to things. And, and uh, you, you, you need to, to, to be the salt. You need to give good taste to the conversations that you're in. So you fulfill that law. You don't simply lie about people, but you 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 accentuate their virtues when you can. Uh, so, and so on and so on. So to fulfill the law of God um, is, is, to, is, to, is to love other people in, in very practical ways. Now, whoever's begotten by God, whoever has this divine spark breathing in them, conquers the world. And the victory that conquers the world is our faith. Okay, when you and I hear faith again, we think there's one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Trinity, Resurrection. We think of the facts of faith, and and that's that's very good. The faith has certain facts, but I'll tell you the truth. I don't believe most of it, except for the fact that Jesus tells me it's true. Him I can trust. Whoever's begotten by God conquers the world, and the victory that conquers the world is our trust, our trust in Jesus. And, you know, <laughs> what's the saying? In God we trust, all of us pay cash. We can get very uh, um, spiritual about our faith, whereas our faith is a very practical thing. We live in the world because we trust that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And he, he, he tells us that there are certain realities. I shared with you yesterday the idea that understanding precedes action. If I know the bridge is out, I'm not going to drive down that road. Understanding precedes action. And if I truly trust Jesus, there are certain things I am going to do. Like I am not going to uh, take revenge on someone. If I truly trust that Jesus is the Messiah... I am not going to steal. Um, I'm not going to cheat because he says those things don't work in the long run. You know, sin doesn't work. Think about it. Sin is a very inefficient way to live. Let's take uh, um, uh, thou shalt not commit adultery. It's impossible, you know, to commit adultery. What? I know lots of people commit adultery. No, it's not possible because you're never going to find in the arms of uh, an illicit relationship, what you will find in the arms of a specific or, or of a legitimate spouse. You know, that, that uh, uh, so often we think, well, I'm not in love with you anymore and, and I need, I'm lonely. Do you think that by cheating on your spouse, you're going to get less lonely? No, you might be diverted for a while, but you're never going to find uh, the security in a relationship that is illicit that you can find in one that is real. And so when your relationship is failing, what do you do? Chase around? No. You find a way to strengthen that relationship, be it through marriage encounter, retrovi, or just talking to each other. You know, that that it's much more efficient. Uh, and I use the word advisedly. It's much more efficient to renew the relationship you're in instead of going into a second, third, and fourth failed relationship that simply multiply the loneliness. So this trust, when we trust that Jesus is the Messiah, we obey him. 
and by obeying him, we conquer the world. Um, so, I don't know. That's what the Bible says. Well, let's go to the gospel. Um, what do I want to say about the gospel? Uh, let's see. Well, there's the word fulfilled. <laughs> okay. He came to Nazareth. This is the gospel of Luke, where he'd grown up. And he unrolled the scroll and found the passage where it's written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he rolls up the scroll, he hands it back to the attendant, and sits down in the eyes of all the synagogue. We're looking intently at him. And he said, Today this scripture passage is fulfilled in your hearing. What? I mean, he is claiming to be, again, the Messiah. This was thought of as a messianic prophecy, and he's claiming to be the Messiah. What? This 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 construction worker again. I I don't think the early church had a real hard time explaining <laughs> that Jesus was in fact the Messiah, the Son of God, the visible image of the invisible God in the world. Because well, he was he was nobody, and that's exactly the point. Uh, he was nobody in the eyes of the world. He was everything in the eyes of the Father. All right, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back with letters, and we'll open the phones, 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. We'll be right back. This hour is sponsored by Ave Maria Mutual Funds, where financial goals are aligned with pro-life values, and fund decisions are based on investment fundamentals designed to preserve and grow wealth without violating moral beliefs. More information at AveMariaFunds.com. Well, that means it's time for letters. Let us go to letters. I got a lot of them. Well, I got a letter a while ago from Dan that I thought was an interesting question. What were the papal states? Nah, I don't know. What are the papal states? Why were they formed? Uh, were they under the direct control of the uh, of the uh, of the Pope? The the it, the papal states are are an interesting phenomenon. Essentially, they were central Italy, uh, a line straight down, basically from Ravenna. I think it was started in Ravenna to Rome. Um, I, I can't remember if Ravenna was part of the papal states. I think it was. They they changed shape. Uh, oh, the voice major said Ravenna is beautiful. It is. If you ever want to go to some place in Italy that is not overrun with tourists, but is gorgeous, Ravenna, the mosaics, unbelievable. But uh, we we digressed. So, what were the papal states? Um, the the barbarians, my ancestors. Uh, Across the Rhine, I think it was in was it in 410 A.D. when the Rhine froze solid. They'd been coming into the Roman Empire for ages, but well, when the Rhine froze solid, they just said, "Heinrich, the the river's frozen. We can move to France now. They got Weinder, and it's warmer." I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I don't know. <laughs> but they, but I, not kidding too much. I mean, the barbarians wanted nice things like. Like, um, well, France. So they, they moved in and, oh, Bart's laughing. Well, the, um, uh, the, the, the empire essentially collapsed in the West and moved East. And a lot of, uh, Romans, uh, who had been living in Rome, who were prominent and in government, uh, moved to Constantinople, the new Rome. And, uh, 
I'm making this very simple, but uh, the Eastern Roman Empire, or the Byzantine Empire, as it's sometimes called, repeatedly uh, attempted to and occasionally succeeded in reconquering the West, parts of the West, uh, and um, increasingly the the civil administration of these conquered territories was managed by the bureaucracy of the the church and and uh, it just kind of well became the essentially a, a, a duchy central italy um a state within the byzantine empire that was administered by the pope and the uh the, the bureaucracy of religion. So, um, in, in, let's see here. I'm looking, I'm actually looking at something. Um, in short, the, the central part of Italy came under the administrative authority of the Pope in Rome. And it stayed that way until the modern day in a certain sense. Now, people can say that this is terrible, but it had a good effect. All right. Ravenna was conquered in 751 by the Lombards, Germanic tribes, and um, that kind of cut off Rome from the papacy. And well, uh, or or then not not Rome, but uh, Constantinople from the papacy, and the papacy from Constantinople. And so uh, the popes had to deal with the local kings. Well, there's a fellow named Pepin who was a Pepin the Short, <laughs> who became the king of the Franks, and he sort of gave, officially, he gave the uh, the central part of Italy to the papacy. It was formalized, but it had been in 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 effect for almost two hundred years by then, maybe more. So that's what the papal states were. Now we can think that's horrible, but you see, the 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 administration of the Roman Empire in Constantinople. Uh, the Byzantine Empire really controlled the the um, Eastern Church. There was this constant tension between the Patriarch of Constantinople and the and the Emperor of Constantinople, the Byzantine Emperor, and there was eye gouging and imprisonment in monasteries and all this sort of thing. The Bishop of Rome was able to keep his autonomy because he had political autonomy from the Byzantine emperors. Now, the popes have always struggled against the state. There's been a, 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 since the times of Nero, we've been struggling with the state. And in the times of Mussolini, in the 1930s, uh, the Pope had been restricted to the Vatican. He was a prisoner of the Vatican. The the Roman uh, or the Italian Revolution under Garibaldi and that crowd uh, took the Papal States from the Pope. And in 1930, in the, in the 30s, Benito Mussolini realized he couldn't govern Italy without at least the tacit uh, uh, consent of the Popes because the Italians were very Catholic. He worked out a concordat. This was before the Second World War. Mussolini was an atheist, uh, and I think remained one his whole life. He was a, an atheist socialist. So uh, <clears throat> the, the papacy was given a compensation, a monetary compensation for the lands taken from them by the Italian government, and 
they were also allowed a small enclave of property around St. Peter's Basilica and a number of facilities in Rome. You know, St. Mary Major, I think, is part of, uh, and St. John Lateran. These, I think these are part of the, the papal uh, territories. And the Pope is not a citizen of any country but the Vatican, allowing him to maintain his political autonomy, which is a very, I think, a very valuable thing. Uh, he is technically not beholden to any government in the world. And that's that's what the papal states do. And, and the Vatican is still the papal state. It's an independent country. So I, I hope that explains the papal states. People think how awful the Pope had actual property, but it allowed the Roman Catholic Church to be Catholic. Uh, you look at other churches, and they're national churches, Swedish Lutherans and and Greek Orthodox. We, we're not, you know, and this is why I get a little upset when people talk about American Catholics. I'm not an American Catholic. I'm a Catholic in America. <laughs> so uh, I'm not part of the American Catholic Church. I'm part of the Catholic Church in America. So uh, the reason that we can say that, that we're not an ethnic church, that someone who is African in origin or Asian in origin is just as Catholic as I am, and maybe more so. So uh, I hope that answers your question. I think it's a, a great question, a very, very interesting one. All right, let us go back to the letters here. I have got so many letters. Let's see here. There's a few I wanted to uh, especially read. Oh, I, I got a cute, a cute uh, little thing from, from. Uh, 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 this is from who's this from? From Steve. It's a, a sign that he saw that he saw in a in a mag or in a some. It's a photo he stumbled over. I hope when I inevitably choke to death on gumming bears, people just say I was killed by bears and leave it at that. I thought that's pretty funny in light of someone saying, why don't we hear the gummy bear song anymore? We're not encouraging me to eat gummy bears. All right, let's see here. Um, now, this is one I, I wanted to read because I, I, I in my 1221, in my December 21st show, somebody asked about... Um, um, depriving uh, someone dying of nutrition and and I said that I thought it you know the church teaches you can't you can't starve a person to death or, or let them die of thirst and uh, dying of thirst is a horrible way to go however this is someone who wrote in and I'll leave it anonymous um, uh, that um, uh, the radio broadcast on 1221 made me upset Father Simon told the lady whose mother had terminal Alzheimer's that the mom should get IV fluids if unable to eat. I'm a, I'm a nurse. It is the natural process for people who are dying not to eat or drink. And then, in great emphasis, they don't feel thirsty. In fact, giving a dying person IV fluids will increase their pain. The more Christian thing to do is to have hospice nurses get involved in her care. Fully paid by Medicare, they can come into the nursing home. They can assess the lady's condition, help the daughters with their difficult decisions. Please ask Father Simon not to teach the listeners about medical topics he's not educated on. And she's absolutely right. I have no, I have no uh, expertise in things medical, though I do come from a long line of hypochondriacs. But I'm, I'm, I, I have to trust the moral teaching of the church here, that you don't starve someone and you don't, you don't uh, deny them fluids. So if anybody knows better on this, you know, a dying person suffers more from an IV. I, I, I'd like to know 
um, especially if there are any good uh, moral theologians or medical ethicists who know about this, I would love to hear from you on that. Because as I interpret the teaching of the church, that, that you can't deny fluids to someone. And I was kind of amazed to hear that that an IV is, is I've had IVs, then they don't hurt me, but then again, I'm not dying. So I, I, I apologize if I have said something untrue. But on the other hand, I, I do know that the church teaches, you, you know, the whole question is, what, what is this person going to die of? Are they going to die of starvation or thirst or of the disease that's killing them? Uh, we can't deny food and water to someone, but this nurse would say, well, that's part of dying. You stop eating and drinking. So I'm, I, I, I admit that I am not an expert in this and would like to learn. So let me know if, if, um, if, if you can. All right, here's another one I wanted to hit today. That's pretty good. Okay. Um, this is, uh, uh, this is very interesting. Father Rocky talked about this. Uh, I heard him speaking not long ago. Uh, on Monday's 1220 show, that's 1220, you contrasted Mary's question to the angel with Zechariah's as the first being an expression of wonder and the second expression of doubt. That may well be true, but also might Mary's question be an act of discernment? If in response to Mary, the angel said, we told her to forget her vow or become impregnated by some other physical means, Mary would have known that this vision was not from God. That's interesting. Only when Gabriel answered with the means consistent with Mary's vow and moral law did the Virgin give her fiat. I think that is very interesting. I try to use this as an example when discerning whether some great or little pain, come, little plan comes from God, my ego, or the devil. I'm interested in your thoughts. I, I actually think that's a very interesting way to look at it. This is uh, from Pam uh, and John. Um, you know, that... that that if we have a vision and the the angel in the vision, for instance, tells us to do something that's clearly morally wrong, that isn't from God. Remember, the scriptures say that the devil can come disguised as an angel of light, that that this is one of the reasons that we really have to know the scriptures well. I think it's very important that we know the scriptures well. Uh, um, so uh, I, I, thanks for that. that. That's a very, very good point that you make. Um, and, and it's interesting. Uh, I, I'd never actually looked at the Greek text about Mary's fiat or Zechariah's doubts. And it's, it's very different language. Mary says, how will this be? She doesn't say, how can this be? But she says, how will this be? Uh, and, and, um, Zechariah says something else. He says, how am I going to know that this is true? In other words, the vision isn't enough, and the occurrence isn't enough. He needed to have proof. He wanted proof. He, I've heard the sin against the Holy Spirit described as, and, and I don't think it's a very complete definition, but I think it, it fits in with it, wanting to know more than God is pleased to tell you. That, that was the sin of Eve and Adam. So they wanted to know more than God was pleased to tell them, and we're often like that. So... Uh, Zechariah, he says, according to what will I know? Well, <laughs> your wife's going to be pregnant. So he asks for a sign, and the angel says, you want a sign? I'm going to give you a sign. You're going to be mute. And so it was. So uh, very different attitudes on the part of the Blessed Mother and Zechariah. So I, I think that that's kind of interesting. 
I got one. Where did I put it? Oh, let's see here. Where can I find it? I got one from a... Oh, good grief. Now this won't open. Oh, there, it opened. Uh, I Oh, this is one uh, that I oh, wanted to deal with. Um, what time is it? Oh, I'll have to deal with that one tomorrow because that's going to take some time. But I got a wonderful letter from a former student of mine. <laughs> uh, and, and I was very amused by that because I often talk about uh, how I taught uh, dead languages to comatose seminarians and he pointed out that he wasn't comatose and he wasn't he actually paid attention uh so uh, uh i can't find the letter where did i put it but um he mentions uh about about the idea that the kingdom of god i'm, I'm always defining the kingdom of god as god's royal nature and he pointed out that interestingly enough this is father matt i'll just uh um mention his name obliquely, Father Matt. Uh, he mentions that the kingdom of God is spoken about in the um, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, but more often than not, in the in the gospel, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in the gospel of John, you have the Logos. And Logos, he points out correctly, because he wasn't sleeping in the class, he points out that Logos was... Um, really means more than word it it ah, this is here it is this is really good let me let me find this um okay let me see if i can open it which is always iffy with me all right ah he says you haven't mentioned it recently but you have for many years um instructed to see the kingdom of God as God's royal nature. The kingdom of God is mentioned primarily in the Gospels of St. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's interesting to compare that with the prologue of St. John's Gospel, which we discuss the word logos. Logos is a word composed of letters, is, but it is more akin to the logic of God, the thought of God, perhaps the reasonable and royal nature of God. I think that's, that's, that's great. You see, he didn't sleep through the classes. He was more awake than I was. So thank you, Father Matt, for that insight that in a sense the kingdom of god is logos it is reason it is it is order uh it's the opposite of chaos so there you go all right well we're gonna we're gonna take a break we'll come back with a word of the day and we'll open the phones at 888-914-9149 that's really cool about logos and, and kingdom i never noticed that before Today's programming is sponsored in part by St. Gregory Recovery Center. More information about their Catholic-centered recovery from substance abuse is available at relevantradio.com slash sdgregory. Go around this world, baby mine. Go around this world, baby mine. Go around this world, I'm a girl. Go around this world, baby mine. Well, that will wake one up. If you are comatose listening to these obscure definitions, it's vigorous music. Well, all right, let us go now to the word of the day. The word of the day is synagogue. It, it's, it's, what I really want to push is 
it doesn't appear in the Old Testament. No synagogue in the Old Testament. Uh, I think that that's an important thing to understand, that, that the religion of Israel was a very domestic religion. It's something you did at home. There were three pilgrimage feasts that if you could, you were expected to go to the temple. And other than that, you can be a perfectly good Jew uh, in our times, even if you never cross the threshold of a synagogue. Now, that would be rare, and I would doubt that someone who doesn't go to synagogue would think of themselves as an observant Jew. However, the synagogue was invented most probably when Israel was excommunicated, or was, uh, when Israel was, was, um, no, I can't think of the word, the exile, that's the exile I'm looking for. When they were exiled from the Holy Land, when they were in Babylon, the synagogue was a way to be an Israelite without a temple. And that's kind of important, um, that a lot of uh, what we have in the church developed from the synagogue, but ultimately, and Rabbi Lefkowitz was the one who told me this, he said, you Catholics, you're more Jewish than we are. You've got temples and sacrifices and all that. We we don't. And I thought that was kind of interesting, that, that uh, Christianity uh, went in one direction, continuing the sacrificial order as the as the first Christians understood it. And Judaism went in a sense in the other direction, that that uh they they couldn't offer the sacrificial order anymore. And so they developed the synagogue. So uh, we are our um, we benefit from both temple and synagogue, but very interesting, I think. The word synagogue doesn't appear in the Old Testament. It is not part of Judaism necessarily, or it is not part of the religion of Israel necessarily. All right, let's go to phone calls. Hello, who do... Ricardo from San Antonio. How you doing, Rick? San Antonio. It's warm there, isn't it? I'm looking out yes, at it snow. Is, and it's, yes, it is. It's 17 degrees where I am. Not that I'm complaining, <laughs> but what can I do for you, Ricardo? Well, Father, I was reading uh, the Bible, and I got to Matthew eleven eleven, and for some reason I had never seen this before, uh, uh, or at least I, I skipped through it. Matthew eleven eleven it says, "I tell you the truth, among those born of a woman, there has never risen anyone greater than John the Baptist." And I know yes. it ends saying that uh, yet he, uh, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. But the first yeah. part. Does that include our, 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 our Blessed Virgin uh, Mary? Is, is John the Baptist greater than Mary? That, that's, that, that's what caught me. Well, what we believe is that our Blessed Mother, by a gift of God, uh, by the grace of God, was conceived without the effects of original sin. She had, now remember that when you think of the kingdom of heaven as heaven when you die, that's one thing. But I'm always telling you the word kingdom of heaven, the word basilea, uh, which means it was usually translated kingdom, and heaven means God, the basilea of God. Uh, you read about it, if you read about it in Luke, it's the it's the kingdom of God. The same phrase in Matthew is kingdom of heaven because Matthew was addressing himself to Jews who try to avoid words like God out of great respect. So, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, is the same thing. But the the the, the question here is what does it what's the kingdom and the word in greek is basilea which means the royal nature a kingdom in the ancient world wasn't simply a geographical territory or a political system 
the kingdom was something that you inherited from your father. To be a king, you don't go to king's school or take courses in kinging. All you have to do is have a, a parent who's a king. And so it's the royal nature that you inherit. So God's royal nature. Don't think of it as heaven when you die or a place so much as God's royal nature. So I tell you that those born of women, there's not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. You, you, yet whoever is least in God's family, whoever is least in the royal nature of God is greater than he. And we believe our blessed mother from the moment of her conception had that humanity restored, uh, you know, that, that, that she was conceived with God's royal nature intact. So because of her immaculate conception, she was never not in the kingdom of God. Does that make sense to you? Yes, it does. And it makes me feel a lot better. Thank you. There you go. That was, that was a great answer. (laughs) Thank you. Well, good, good. Yes. And you know, that, that, uh, um, that, that means that you and I, by nature of our baptism, in that sense, we're greater than John the Baptist. How can I be greater than John the Baptist? Just in a practical way. I know something that John never knew. I know about the cross. I know the nature of God's love. Uh, uh, another thing that, that uh, 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 Jesus says to the disciples, I will not taste the fruit of the vine until I drink it new in the kingdom. When did he drink wine again? On the cross. God's royal nature was demonstrated on the cross. That's what God is like, that, that love to the last drop of blood. That's, that's God's nature. And, and that just, I know something that John didn't know. I know how much God loves me. And, and our Blessed Mother, who was Our Lady of Sorrows, knew that from the very beginning. Uh, so I hope that helps. Yes, it did. Thank you so much. God bless. God bless. And God bless you, Ricardo. And have a good New Year. Who we got now, dear voice in my head? Frank from Fond du Lac. It's even colder than Fond du Lac than it is where I am. Oh, right on the lake. So what can I do for you, Frank? Well, Fond du Lac, as you can tell, that sounds a bit French. And the roots of the county go back. uh, The Jesuits stomped around here in the 1600s, actually. Well, there you go. Yes, it means the bottom of the lake. (laughs) Which yeah. is where Fond du Lac is, at the south end of the lake, not literally the bottom of the lake, but yeah, Fond du Lac, the, the the bottom of the lake. So, what can I do for you there in the bottom of the that cold lake? Well, when I was a boy, like in 1970, we got a new priest, and he was here about two months, and uh, he said, "You know, I can uh, I can feel traces of Jansenism in this parish." But he oh, said, then the, good lord! Then he said, "The, the roots are." He said, the roots are old and French, and there isn't much left of it. I often wondered, what exactly does that mean? And I've read up on it a couple times, and I, I don't really... What is Jansenism? What well, Jansenism, it was popular to accuse everybody of Jansenism in the 1970s. I remember it well, that, uh, that if you were uh, at all trying to be moral or you were a Jansenist, you were rigid, you were a Jansenist. But it was Jansenism proper was a, a, a theological movement started by or a movement in the church started by Cornelius Janssen, who was, uh, I think he was Belgian at, at uh, Louvain. Uh, he taught at the Louvain. And he essentially uh, stressed uh, original sin and depravity 
and predestination. It was kind of like Calvinism within the Catholic Church, that that uh, it had this extreme stress on human depravity, and it taught predestination. And because it taught predestination, it it was condemned. Now, the people who were condemning the Jansenists in 1970, who were calling everybody who tried to obey the commandments a Jansenist, they believed in predestination. The idea that, that uh, everyone is automatically saved is predestination. In other words, I cannot say no to God. And so the predestinationists in our current age are the ones who, who believe that, well, you can't go to hell. Well, yes, you can. I think that you can. I pray that I don't. And I hope, I hope echoing some theologians, that there's no one in hell, but I suspect there's a few. Uh, I, I don't want to get into that. But Jansenism was this movement in the uh, 1600s that stressed um, the depravity of humanity uh, and uh, really pushed that you you uh, you were predestined. It, it, it toyed with predestination. Therefore, it was condemned. Does that help? It does. Father, is uh, the area west of the Rhine, is that uh, kind of a mix of German and French cultures? Well, you know, it's it's no, it's pretty German, but you get into Alsace, and that's sort of a mix of French and German cultures. But it's really, you know, the the French don't want to hear this, nor do the Germans. But but uh, genetically, there's almost no difference between Northern French people and Western German people. Um, uh, a lot of my ancestors came from that area, and it's it's. Um, it's wine country, but, uh, you know, Germany was a collection of 250 or so small countries. And so some of them had more in common with the French, some more in common with Northern Germans. But uh, the culture was Christian. That was the culture. So they shared a culture more than more than uh, more than they shared anything else. So it's it's. It's becoming increasingly German where it's supposed to be German, increasingly French where it's supposed to be French, because those those uh, slight differentiations are, are vanishing uh, under the onslaught of modern communication. You know that um, I, I was in Alsace not too long ago, and and uh, the dialect is uh, the German dialect. There's very discouraged. They're they're Fra they're they're Frenchifying it. Um, so uh, you know that it. Uh, it has become France. I don't know if that answers that question. Uh, I just heard a couple times that early settlers in this region, they spoke a German dialect with a French accent, which always sounded kind of confusing to me. But... Oh, yeah. Well, I don't know if it would be a French accent, but it might be French uh, French uh, influence. So it's, very, it's a very interesting thing. But, yeah, that would be true. That would be true. Well, all right. Thanks for calling. Who have we got now, dear voice in my head? Colleen from British Columbia, Canada. Are you with us, Colleen? What can I do for you? Yes, indeed I am. Thank you, Father, for taking my call. I'm um, honored. What can I, I do? Would, I'm asking if you would please give um, uh, kind of like um, a brief history of um, when and uh, the Latin mass came in into um, the church. Like uh, I know that it, you know it didn't it didn't start like. There used to be uh, the vernacular, and then sure, sure. At what point did the Latin come in? Well, I think you can tell you can tell when when the mass began to Latinize in the West from the first canon, the Roman canon. It mentions a lot of saints who uh, were in the two hundreds. Uh, 
So I, I think that that la- I think that there was a much more flexible attitude <laughs> to to language in the, in the liturgy in the first uh, few hundred years. But I would say that looking at the Roman canon and its Latinization, that it it probably end of the one hundreds, certainly by the middle of the two hundreds, was beginning to be Latin. They would do the mass in in a number of languages. You know that that we have the remnants of Greek and of Hebrew or Aramaic in in uh, in in the mass to this day. Kyrie is is Greek and Alleluia and Amen are are Hebrew and, and Aramaic. So the the there were probably large hunks of the mass done in 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 one language or the other. But I think that by the mid two hundreds it was certainly Latinized. Does that help? Well, yes, but see, when I was in Yugoslavia, um, uh, they told me that they had been in the vernacular forever. Like they never, they never did Latin there. So some, some um, depends which part of Yugoslavia. Uh, it depends which part of Yugoslavia. Um, in, in Croatia, the mass was in Latin. In Serbia, the mass was in. Uh, at, at one point, it would have been probably in Old Church Slavonic, which was is related to Serbian. So. Uh, uh, you look at Latin, well, if you're in Italy, the Mass is still in Latin, in a sense, because Italy is a, a uh, an orga- Italian is an organic outflow of Latin. So, in that sense, that Serbians would certainly say, well, we've always done it in Serbian, but a thousand years ago, Serbian looked a lot more like Old Church Slavonic than it does modern Serbian. So, um, it's, it's, you know, this is the stuff of which doctorates are written, but um, the the Latin in Western Europe, both among Protestants and Catholics, was an extremely common language until the 1750s. Uh, the uh, uh, um, uh, Newton wrote his Principia, a mathematical work, in Latin because that was what educated people read until Newton. So, yeah, it's 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 an interesting topic, but I I, I suspect that in the city of Rome. Uh, that Mass was largely in Latin by the 200s at the latest. So, all right, we've got time for one more question. What do we got? What do we got? Gina from San Diego, just got a minute. What can I do for you? Hi, Father. My niece had a baby with her boyfriend about 10 months Mm -hmm. ago, and the child is not yet baptized. Uh, Mm -hmm. Can you just quickly say what the importance of baptism is and how... I mean, it's not for me to tell her um, because I don't want to create a rift, but mm-hmm. I just sure. want to know why we want our babies baptized. And I'll take my, uh, because, I'll take the answer offline. Thank you so much. Because it's a gift from God. If God wants to give this to you, why would you say no to God's gift? Jesus established this and asked us to do it. And and you know, to say no, no, we don't want to do what you want us to do. That's crazy. I hope that helps a little. Maybe I can talk about it again. But stay tuned for Drew. He's not confusing at all.